Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind the scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. This podcast talks a lot about specimen data, the when, where, why, how, and by whom museum specimens are collected and used. This can encompass a wide range of data that is just as important as the specimen it's associated with, especially for descriptions of new species. It's a treasure trove of information, and the ways in which we use it and store it are rapidly changing. Here to talk about this topic is Dr. Mackenzie Mabry. Mackenzie is a USDA postdoctoral fellow with the Florida Museum of Natural History and the New York Botanical Garden, and a recent IDIG bio postdoctoral researcher in botany. Her current work investigates the use of natural history collections data for developing climate-ready crops. Welcome, Mackenzie. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Wow, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here talking about one of my favorite topics. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for coming on. So when I started designing this episode, I actually put out a call to Twitter asking for people who would be interested in talking about how specimen data gets stored, curated, shared, those sorts of things. And you reached out to me. So why did that spark your interest? Yeah, I'm always looking for a chance to talk about natural history collections and specimens. I'm currently finishing up an IDIG bio postdoc position. So IDIG bio is an integrated digitized bio collections. And this is uh, an organized group um, through NSS that aims to make data and images for uh, biological specimens available in electronic format for basically everyone from researchers to the general public. And so we think about what you're like interested in with natural history collections and how this data is stored and shared a lot. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, so to start us off, what is a collection? Like what counts as a natural history collection? So I think that I would probably take a pretty inclusive view of collection. So maybe it might change with who you talk to. But from my perspective, I think um, natural history collections are really any collection that focuses on the preservation and study of specimens and materials for the natural world. So these collections can be found from museums to universities to botanical gardens or research institutions, but you can also find these as personal collections. Um, so a lot of people have these like beautifully well-maintained and curated collections in their own homes. And some of our biggest collections started out as personal collections. So I don't think we know officially, especially because like there's so many, like how can you count all these personal collections? Or if you're like in, um, a global, like in the global South, a lot of those collections may just not be uh, known to the people who are trying to keep track of them. They're known to the folks there for sure. But um, there is an effort to try to understand what that number is. And so this is the Global Registry of Scientific Collections, and it's housed on GBIS, if people are familiar with GBIS. And their estimate right now is about 3,200. Um, they're referring to them as institutions, but they're 
counting institutions as herbaria, museums, zoos, botanical gardens, biobanks, seed banks, um, any, a, a lot of different types of collections. So that's kind of the best guess for that right now. So how many specimens do you think that is? Oh, specimens. So um, they're like the institutions, kind of not a great perfect estimate, but the best estimate to date is that there are probably about one to two billion specimens in the U.S. with likely three to four billion worldwide. Oh, my gosh. That's that's nuts. Um, it, it might not sound like a lot, but there's so much potential for scientists in that number of specimens. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the different ways museum specimens can be used for research? Yeah, I think it's a, a crazy amount of specimens. And I think it's also cool when we think about like, we're still adding, <laughs> adding to this. It's a growing number constantly. But these specimens can um, can be used in, in so many different ways. So you can think about the physical specimen itself. And these physical specimens can be used for making taxonomic discoveries. They can be used for taxonomic descriptions. So a lot of these physical specimens are correlated to what we call type specimens or kind of the, the textbook definition for what we're calling species X. We can also use these physical specimens for systematics using uh, various methods to extract DNA from the specimens. And then we can use that DNA to make phylogenies, understand how things are related to one another. We can also use these physical specimens to look at the morphology. So taking measurements of different parts of the, the specimen and getting ideas of how things are related or different from one another or the biodiversity in the group from these measurements in this DNA. And just in general, with the physical specimens, you can, um, using them for documenting historical and present day patterns of biological diversity broadly. And then there's also, and I know we'll talk about this in a minute, the digital specimens. There's some really exciting ways to use these digital specimens as well in research from understanding plant diversity at these like really massive scales to looking at the evolution of different niche space. So where plants are and then advancing technologies and machine learning, we've been able to um, use digital specimens for plant identification, as well as phenology. So detecting when things are in flower and kind of getting an understanding of flowering time across space. That's such a wide variety of information. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure I'd like missed like so much. <laughs> it's not just that there's so much science that we can do with this information. Um, the specimens in these collections, they're objects of scientific value, but they're also pieces of history. Like you were saying, there's a lot we can do with the historic data, but then also these specimens can tell stories just like objects of art and culture. Yeah. And that's actually, I think one of my favorite parts um, that I'm getting into more and more recently is that these like specimens kind of serve as a record as what people um, were collecting and found important at that time. It kind of, they also provide this baseline, this historical baseline that enables researchers to understand the changes of these species and communities and to correlate those patterns of change with natural or human related changes like climate change and pollution. And so specimens I think are actually becoming more and more valuable over time. But then 
it's really exciting to think about the people behind the collecting. So the, the history of the folks who collected them and who identified these plants. And one really nice place to try to get at some of these stories is the database Bionomia. And so you can go on to Bionomia and look at these collectors and what they collected and try to figure out who they were. And so one of my favorite ones that have come to light, um, and this is from the Black and Natural History Museum's webpage, so folks can always like check it out. There's so many cool stories they've uncovered, is Dr. Margaret Collins. So she was a termite expert and a field biologist. She was the first Black woman to earn a PhD in entomology and she, when she graduated from the University of Chicago in 1949. And she was a senior researcher at the Smithsonian and was in charge of the termite diversity set from the Caribbean islands in Guyana. And it's actually dedicated to her now. And she has this like nickname called the termite lady. It's a great example of the stories that are hidden within our collections of the people behind all the work. There's a lot of scientific work that is important for us to do on museum specimens to kind of understand the ways in which humans might have shaped the data to give it context, uh, because there are patterns of bias in collecting and all sorts of other things. I, I think there's a lot of interesting information in the stories that collections tell as well. Yeah, especially because it's like, it's such a human, like, like a natural quality of humans to like collect and store things. Like I think most people when they're like young kids have like their rock collection, or like the just little things that you collect. And so it's like, it's such a natural part of being a human to collect and categorize and understand. And so that's why I think they're really special too. I completely agree. Did you, did you have a collection as a kid? I did, like every collection. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> had a rock collection, a shell collection. I still have my bug collection. I definitely pressed plants and books. Like, I mean, I guess it was very clear I was headed this direction, even if I didn't realize it. <laughs> and so sometimes... Uh, a scientist can visit a scientific collection. They can sit down in the collection, work directly with the specimens. Um, but that's not always the case. And so I'd really like to ask you um, about the barriers that exist for scientists that make collections not as accessible, because that really does affect the work that can be done on them and who it can be done by. Definitely. Yeah. And there's like a lot of historical, like systemic reasons why who is in the spaces and who's not. But um, like some of the reasons are, are actual physical barriers. So there are, you know, stairs leading up to collections. So they're not accessible by wheelchair um, or people need mobility aids um, that may not be like used or utilized in those collections. I think that this is getting better for at least many collections in the United States, but, but not everywhere. Especially when a lot of the collections are housed in these really old buildings that aren't necessarily up to accessibility codes. Yeah, no, that is exactly what I think the most common reason you'll hear from those collections that may still not be accessible is that collections are just so underfunded that they have no financial support to try to add this, this space, which they should be. Um, but it's they're like barely able to pay their staff. And so, you know, it's like, there's a, it's a, it's hard space for sure. Um, but financial is hard for, for everyone involved in collections. Like uh, for those who are wanting to travel to visit other collections, you know, most commonly people are applying for different grants or fellowships. So it's super competitive to get that funding to even go visit a collection. 
And then there's, of course, geopolitical barriers. So there's uh, visas where some countries have access to other places a lot easier than other countries. It's interesting when you associate it with collection where specimens were taken out of a country and brought back to another country. And then folks in that country want to study the specimens, but those specimens are no longer in their own country. And I think there are some efforts to mitigate this. For example, having conferences have a virtual component, things like that. But it it certainly doesn't mean that the opportunity for scientific development is equitable. These barriers are connected to much larger institutional issues, like, for example, Eurocentricity. And we need to absolutely address those problems as a scientific community. But there's also this collection-specific opportunity. There are steps that we can take to make our specimens and our data more accessible while we work on those large-scale problems. And one of the reasons that I'm excited to talk to you is that a really big one is digitization. Um, So can you tell us about digitization, what it is, and how it can begin to make our collections resources more accessible? Yeah, definitely. I am really excited about digitizing natural history collections. And of course, that's the the main aim of uh, iDigBio. So something that we're very passionate about. But what it means kind of at the core is, is turning a physical specimen and that information within into some sort of digital record. So you could have, um, for example, while you're digitizing specimens, have all of the information that's typically held in label information. So what the species is, where it was collected, who collected it, when they collected it, all of that information then uploaded onto some sort of online repository. So now there is this digital um, representation of that information that's available. But there's, of course, I think what people might be more familiar with is um, some sort of photo or image of that specimen. So these are good quality photos of specimens. And then these photos can be used by scientists or really anyone. Like we talked about earlier, there's a ton of really cool places that folks are taking this research. And it gets kind of thorny because what we're dealing with is not only these physical specimens as representatives for science, but also these digital specimens. Um, And it can get really tricky to document and link all of that data properly. Yeah, so multiple forms. So we kind of talked about the the physical specimens themselves, which, you know, are anything from insects that are pinned to a stuffed bird, to a press and dried plant, to a a skin of a a mammal, to some rocks or fossils. The forms are varied as the natural world is. And we as a natural history collection society have some rules. So there is like the species name and who collected it, where they collected it, when it was collected. But of course, different collections also have some additional information sometimes. Maybe it's like the soil that it was in or like the substrate where the fossil was found. And so there's already, you can see the avalanche of information that can just come from the specimen label itself. And then when you get into images, people are just so incredibly clever that now we have CT scans, you have 3D images, you have just, you know, photos, or there's multiple photos per for image. And so the forms are as varied as natural history is. 
And it adds complexity when you think about putting all of that information, standardizing it into a database, because different types of collections might need different data fields or categories or ways to relate their data. For example, the data that a collection of insects is going to generate um, has things like instar, like life stage. Uh, that's going to look very different than an archaeological collection where they have information like um, the different cultural subgroup that an archaeological artifact might be from. Yeah, and there's there's some really great efforts by the community to try to standardize or have a, a controlled terminology that will hit all of the ways that we describe our collections because, of course, kind of the, the big picture goal in the end is maybe I work on plants, but plants don't operate in isolation. They interact with the, the soils, they interact with the insects, the mammals that walk by, you know, and so like, how can I access these other natural history collections in a meaningful way to do, you know, these big questions of, of interaction. And so one big group that has been um, trying to work as a community to kind of reconcile this space is called the Biodiversity Information Standards Working Group. And that what they've come up with is these Darwin Core Standards. And so you basically have this Darwin Core term. So for example, scientific name. And so all the, the species name would be matched to that, that column, that scientific name. And authorship would be matched to authorship. Collector ID would be, you know, Mackenzie Mabry. There's efforts to try to standardize that. But of course, exactly what you said, like instar, like there's just so many things that just uh, it constantly is growing. And we sort of already touched on this when I egregiously jumped ahead to databasing um, because I was just so excited to talk about it. But um, yeah, can you talk about how all of this data is stored? Yeah, so the, the the digital representations of these specimens are are stored on various computer clusters worldwide. So the different repositories kind of maintain their own their own services, but they can be accessed by anyone at places like GBIF, which stands for Global Biodiversity Information Facility, or IDBio, which I talked about earlier. So those are great places to start going and and like working through and looking at all these specimens. Yeah, and so there's such a variety of information, um, and there's also a tremendous amount of information. If you think about all of those collections coming from different institutions, they have different levels of funding, they have different numbers of staff, um, and so sometimes collections can have amazing, robust data systems, um, and sometimes, especially the smaller collections, they're operating off of Excel sheets, um, or in some cases, even handwritten notes about their collections. So with all of those moving parts, how do we as a collections community manage data quality? Oh, <laughs> the nightmare question. <laughs> I feel like it's a it's a big question. And I and there I definitely think, especially when you start to think about this as a global process, like there's just so many different ways that people um have managed their collections or can fund their collections. Um there's some really, really nice options for collections that might be a little bit smaller, like Symbiota, um, which is a part of iDigBio. And so that's like a collections management tool that then does pull that data information and put it on a repository. And so, but like, do I really expect a world where everybody's using Symbiota? No, that's not realistic. <laughs> and so 
I think as someone who's pulled hundreds of thousands of records off of these digital repositories, the data cleaning is is a, a is a lot of work. <laughs> so um, whether you know sometimes it's something as simple as a, a negative was forgotten in front of a lat long um, authorship, how the, the authorship of the species name has been put in completely can change your results. Uh, and so I don't think I, we, there's a great answer to how we manage all of this data quality, but I do think these organizations like the Biodiversity Information Standards are kind of the best start. These are folks that are incredibly interested in this, this topic and are actively working to find ways, but I think the biggest disconnect right now is you have folks working in that space and they have practicing taxonomists and those groups aren't always having conversations. It's a global, a global process. So that makes it hard. And I hope that as we get better about standardizing our data, we'll be able to do a lot more relationally with the data. And also we'll see gaps in the data. One of my first professional experiences in a museum was actually in an art museum. And one of the challenges we had was that there were extensive notes on um, a lot of the provenance of the different objects. People would have lots of paperwork about when it was donated and how, sometimes in someone else's name. But a really glaring gap was that for a long time, um, at least in the United States, I can't really speak for other places, it was customary to formally refer to a woman as the wife of her husband. Um, and so you would have a lot of records saying like donated by Mrs. Joshua Randall. And we don't know, we presume that her last name was Randall, but we don't know that woman's first name. We, so we don't actually know the name of the person who donated the object. That's pretty upsetting to me, certainly, um, as a person who loves art and really appreciates knowing where it came from, um, that there's this entire person missing in many cases. We know them in relation to the person they were married to. Well, that's so interesting that you said that because I did not know that at all. And the exact same thing happens with collections. So you'll see the collector, the identifier as like Mrs. Initial, like J.O. Smith. And you're like, what? <laughs> she has a name. <laughs> and it's the same problem, exactly the same thing. And in some cases, people have been able to go back through like marriage certificates um, to find what her name is, but it's, it's just, yeah. Yeah. It's like women, they don't even get their own name, but we're going to change it. I would love that. Also many times women were the ones who were hyping up their husband's notes or um, in a lot of cases, like even writing their papers for them. So there's this whole bulk of scientific history that doesn't actually get credited. Um, and we could totally do like a whole other episode on that. Um, a whole other episode on the many, many, many people that don't get credited in the species description process, um, because oftentimes when taxonomists are examining what they believe to be a new species, even the title of this podcast is a bit of a misnomer, because oftentimes, even when scientists are describing a new species, that species has been known, it just hasn't been known formally to the scientific community. There's a lot of wrongs to write there, you know? There's a lot of work to be done uh, in terms of recognizing the people who contribute to science. Definitely, yeah. Just because a lot of the work collections do has scientific value doesn't always mean it's without negative impact. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really important part and um, especially like training young scientists to remember this part. Cause I think we have this, like, you know, this kind of curtain where like, we're like science is free advice, but it's not right. We're all, we all come to it with our own backgrounds. And so I think one of the, one main example of this that I, I can think about is that in the U S many collections were made on native land without permission. And now we're digitizing these specimens, um, making them more freely available. But that is, again, without permission. So it's like, I would be just recreating harm. And so there is efforts to, to combat this. Um, and so one of the big ones is this traditional knowledge and biocultural label kind of service, which is digital tags that you can add to different types of digital natural history collections that offer indigenous communities a tool to add their cultural and historical context and cultural authority to their own archives, as well as these larger repositories that we've been talking about. So there's a lot of work to do. I think like science is best moving forward when we can bring in like the most amount of viewpoints that we can. So like you talked about earlier, with like new species, right? And many times these species have been known locally to people for, like you said, generations. And so there's information to be learned from all these different systems of knowledges. And there's been some nice new, um, some nice papers that talk about these fair and care principles that I really like as kind of a, a framework to thinking about how we can move data forward. So these are published ideas of ways that we can, you know, act to ensure equitable um, data and data collection. And so FAIR principles are findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. And then CARE principles are thinking about Indigenous data governance. So this is um, specifically for the collective benefit authority to control, responsibility, and ethics. And so I really like thinking about these as the principles to move forward with. With this in mind, I, I actually want to ask you specifically about the Nagoya Protocol. So the Nagoya Protocol, for those that are not familiar or less familiar with it, is really about the fair and equitable sharing of benefits that arise from genetic resources. So it's really set out to ensure that all parties involved from whatever this, this resource is, have the same access to the genetic resource, as well as benefit sharing and the and compliance. And notably, the United States is not a signatory on the Nagoya Protocol. So say somebody goes uh, from the United States to a, a country and extracts some DNA from some small organism in this place and then finds out there's a, a chemical, some property of it that can cure cancer. So then the United States could make all this money from curing cancer, but that country where that odd organism or whatever it was was found um, would not be guaranteed any sort of benefit. Which we totally see in collections resources that we already have. Yes, definitely true. Yeah, I like to think we're getting better, but I, I hope in the future we definitely can. Sometimes talking about this makes me feel a little bit discouraged about how science happens, but I also think there's a lot of hope. Yeah, I I am. I totally agree with you that 
there's a lot of room for improvement, but I think a lot of these patterns wouldn't be noticeable if we were not working at this global level, which I feel like we are really working at this global level, which is really exciting. Secretly, which apparently won't be as secretively anymore, <laughs> I really got into this because I found out I could travel and go see the world while learning about different plants. It's just like, uh, what can be better? And get to meet and make new friends and collaborators all around the world. And so I really see that we are already, you know, uh, we're global citizens and global scientists and a global community. And so this idea of having this better understanding of this spatial distribution of natural history of these different collections and of organisms themselves, and then linking all this data together, I feel like we just don't, I don't even think my brain can really process the powerfulness of being able to, to link this data, whether it's the specimen and describing the, or the species and its characteristics with the ecological and environmental and genomic data that has come from it. And then just being able to make these like really large understandings of how the world works around us and why species are where they are. I don't even think we know what we can do yet, especially when we start to think about technologies like AI, like it just, everything seems to be advancing at such a, a level. And um, I think there's like a really exciting future for all of us. But I also want to always remember to not forget about the physical specimens themselves. There's exciting new possibilities, all these digital specimens, but the physical specimens themselves in these natural history collections are really the heart of it all. And so these are still in places that are severely underfunded. You'll hear all the time about collections that's being thrown in the dumpsters because there's just no one to support them. And these collections still need to be added to, like we, we still need people out there collecting and describing the, the biodiversity and these, uh, these, these futures that we envision are not possible without supporting and maintaining those physical specimens too. And I think it's really beautiful that we get to take what we learn for collections resources and for science and bring them into that future making sure that we are improving science as a whole and collections communities as a whole. Definitely, yeah. Mackenzie, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I definitely, I learned a lot and I really appreciate talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, again, I think this is a, they're just such special, special places, special things. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. And it was really nice to talk to you. You too. Mackenzie's publications can be found in journals including Plants, People, Planet, Journal of College Science Teaching, Plant and Cell Physiology, and Phytokeys. To learn more about Mackenzie and her work, you can follow her on Twitter, at Kenzie Mabry, on Instagram, at Kenzie Mabry underscore PhD, or you can check out her website at mackenziemabry.weebly.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespod. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com. And there's just
nothing quite like the the smell of like opening a cabinet it just it's like makes me instantly relax <laughs> oh me too me too <laughs> 